How we doing? This is Rob Foster with RBF Fitness and Nutrition. People upgrade their iPhones, they upgrade their Androids, they upgrade their laptops, but yeah. they're operating with the same brain that they operated with for the last decade. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. You know why you do what you do. So racism, it's out there, but it doesn't have to stop you. Just because somebody might look at you a certain way, that doesn't have to stop your forward progress. Where you have to eliminate the excuses. You gotta make that game plan say, for me to get to that point. All right, we are back on this Double Header Tuesday. This is episode number 78 of Shut Up and Grind with your host, yours truly, Robert B. Foster. So first, I want to do a quick note on the grind gear. So I'm getting some feedback that people don't really like the material. So, you know, I'm a man of the people. So we're going to go through and get all new designs, all new material. I'm going to use the stuff that I get my gym, my gym equipment from. So if this stuff isn't up to par, damn it, we ain't going to sell it. So I'm going to revamp the entire store. And when that's live, I will let you all know. So you guys know here we're all about storytelling. And if you have a story hidden inside of you, might not, might not even be hidden. Like it's there. You just don't know how to tell it. Let me know. You can join my group, Speak About Yourself Out Loud. It's right here on Facebook, direct link, speakaboutyourself.com. And I can help you piece that story together. It's 100% for free. So, of course, you know, there's other up upgrades in there if, if you need deeper help or if you need personalized help. But get started for free. See what we can hammer out for you so you can get your message out to those people that need to hear it. Because that's what we do. So it's all about the story. It's all about what you go through. But you know, on the show, we keep it motivational, we keep it educational, entertaining, and transformational. So if you're at a point in your life where you feel stuck, if you're sick of this pandemic or if the pandemic hurt you, hurt your family, took away loved ones, there's all stories within those struggles. And we want you to share them. And so my guest today also has a story to tell. And we're going to get that story out of her because you guys know I'm not afraid to ask the tough questions. So, you know, but of course, it's it's to highlight the journey, but it's also to relate it to you. You know, so to you guys at home who are listening, who are going through stuff and you feel like you're the only one going through stuff. No, you're not. Like everybody has to go through, through stuff before they get to where they want to be. Even people who inherit businesses, they still have to put in work to keep that business afloat. So don't think that just people in life just have a, a clear path to success because they don't. So joining me to have the conversation today is Deborah Driggs Gaylord. Come on in. Hey, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Look at that smile. Lights up the room. <laughs> How you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm always good. Always wonderful. Good. Wonderful. See, I like, love to hear that. See, because you know the deal. Like when you do what you love, right? It's never, it's never work. And I can it's do never. this all day long. <laughs> that is what's that's what's amazing, right? That is the whole thing. That's the purpose of everything. Get up yes. and do what you love. Exactly. And too many times we get stuck doing things that either we feel we should be doing or doing things just because it pays well. But you're dying. You're slowly dying inside. And I know I was there. You know, people who watch the show, they've heard my story a million times. But like the idea is to find out what you've been through in your life. So we're going to start. Well, with I, have a, I have a few years. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few experiences. So that's good. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and the first thing I ask everyone is just who are you? Who is Deborah? What a great question. Okay, well, who is Deborah? You know, I I am an adventurer. I am a seeker of learning and growth. I love new experiences. I love people. You know, I I, I think that that has been my gift throughout my life is 
really putting people together and networking. And I really do. I enjoy contribution and growth. And I would say that I am a quick learner. You know, I, 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 I get information and I pick it up pretty quick. And so those are the attributes that I think that have helped me along the way and have gotten to me to where I am today. Okay. So do you consider yourself a dreamer or more of a realist? Totally. Total, total yeah. dreamer. Oh, yeah. Totally. I can remember, you know, in school, just drifting off into dream world all the time. And, and what I find really fascinating about that today and a lot of the things that I've studied over the years is that those dreams do become realities at some point. You know, things that I would dream about as a kid actually really happened as I got older. And so it's it's your own manifestation, right? It's your own, when you're having those dreams, you're making them a reality at some point. And sometimes you don't even realize it. You know, later on in life, I'm like, wow, I used to dream about this as a kid and here I am, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And the show I just did two hours ago, the gentleman was sharing that he was struggling with alcoholism. And he said that he knew internally that he needed to change, but he wasn't actively trying to change. But he went to, to a library and he's just browsing. He ended up in the self-help section and he ended up in front of a book that would go on to change his life completely. You know, so like I, I agree with that 100%. Like if you have something deep in your subconscious mind, you know, whether you believe in God or the universe or whatever people believe in, it, it brings you right to what you need. Well, the I best agree. example, I think the best example of it is anytime you're thinking about somebody, nine times out of 10, what's that call that you get yeah, from that yep. person? So, yeah. you know, there is something to that energy. Yes, that law of attraction. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. So let's go back to when, to when you were young, younger. Like what what did you envision yourself doing? for a career? Well, this is interesting. When I was, you know, in grade school, I always wanted to be a doctor. Okay. I was really into, you know, like, I was really interested in fascinating in what the doctors were doing, because I think because I was kind of a sickly child, and I was always at the doctor, and I was mm. always always looking at all the instruments and everything in the doctor's office. And I remember thinking, I want to do that. I want to wear the, the stethoscope and I want to take people's temperature. And <laughs> today you can do that. Right. But, <laughs> um, but you know, that was my first, my first thing was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to help people in some way. So in my childhood, that was becoming a doctor and then I found ice skating. Okay. I found the ice and I realized that I had athleticism and, and, and through ice skating, I learned a lot of tools that I use today, actually. But, you know, I, when I found the ice, it was like I, I was home. I found where I was supposed to be. And I, I mean, you know, you love something when you're getting up at 4 a.m. to do it. Yes. You know, and I was getting up at 4 a.m. And back then we had to do figures. And so I was doing things that were not so glamorous in ice skating. You know, I just wanted to skate and be free. And and I was doing figure eights for three hours every day before school. And then after school, we would do freestyle. And so I just I loved it. That was my life. I didn't have much of a social life because that's what I was doing. And I would get to school and I'd literally be falling asleep at school, <laughs> really tired, trying to catch up on homework. And then after school, I was right back at the rink. And so, you know, I, I say this a lot, and this is truly how I feel about it is that ice skating saved my life because I didn't have the structure at home and I didn't have mentors at home, but I had them on the ice. I had wonderful, beautiful coaches and, you know, the other uh, people, kids that I was skating with, those became those became my mentors, too. And so that the tools that I got from that, you know, they're just they're worth everything, you know, discipline, structure, getting up, taking taking direction, listening to your coaches. You know, I can remember my first competition, I completely fell apart and I fell on the first jump. And then 
it was almost like I was skating in a daze because I was so mortified that I fell. Yeah. And I came off the ice just crying and my coach grabbed me. Can't do this today because you get mm. thrown in jail. But she grabbed <laughs> me and took me straight into the bathroom and said, stop crying. What did you learn? What are we doing better? Immediately, like switched yeah. me from feeling sorry for myself to get back up. You're not, you know, you fell, you get back up and we prepare now for the next one. And so those are life lessons that, you know, stay with you. Okay. You didn't get this one next, you know. Yes. Love it. Yeah. I, I say that almost every, every show I do, almost everyone that I raise my kids the same way. Yep. And it, it's, it goes a long way. It goes a very long way. Like kids being taught today that like winning doesn't matter and just showing up matters. I mean, oh no, so okay. So let me just, I have to express this opinion because when I was growing up, you either won or you lost and you, you know, you had to suck it up. Yeah. Now, if you show up, you get a ribbon. Yeah. You know, I mean, these soccer games that I remember when, because I'm a mom of three. And I would, you know, my kids would play soccer and they wouldn't even, they barely play and they were getting ribbons like they did some great job. And I was like, what are you teaching my kids right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you didn't get a ribbon when I was growing up. You either had to perform and do really well. You had to earn it, you yes. know, and I don't, I just, I, I, it's such a bummer when I see kids getting things for just showing up and not <laughs> this is a funny story so I still skate to this day every once in a while nice and I have had I my the coach that I skate with we had this conversation she had to judge a competition and the father came up to her after the competition and said my daughter didn't get a trophy and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. What, what, what did she place, first, second, or third? He said, oh, no, she didn't place. And, and my coach was like, you don't get a trophy in ice skating unless you're first, second, or third. Mm -hmm. exactly. That's the mentality that we live in today. So it's a little, it's a little yeah. odd. Yeah, and, and if you look at the reality of the world, like in basketball, only the champions get rings in football. Only the champions get rings in the Olympics. Only top top three get medals. Like that's a reality of the world. You know? That's so, it. But like that is a reality. Yes, and, <laughs> and we're not teaching kids how to cope with losing. Right. Like that's 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 a big deal. Like me, I'm still competitive in a lot of different things, even at 46 and a half. Like I'm still very competitive, and like I've never let my kids win ever. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. So, so that way, when they beat me, they're like elated, you know, like they know that that they did something because I go hard with them. But that teaches them to go hard as well. And just a quick, quick story. I coached at a local high school here in Rhode Island. This was back in early 2000. I coached track and field. And so on my first day, I noticed that they had the boys and the girls practicing together. And I was like, <coughs> Yeah. Let me see, hormonal boys, hormonal girls, like this, this is not going to go well. So on that first day, I immediately separated them. I told the girls coaches, like, you guys go over there. Like me and the boys will come over here. And they're like, oh, well, we've always done that. And I was like, what was your record last year? I'm pretty sure it was one in 10. <laughs> I was like, so things need to change. Yeah. You know, so I changed the structure. I made all the students bring their, their report cards. If anyone had below a C, they couldn't practice until I got a progress report from their teachers and people were up. Parents were up in arms. They were complaining to the athletic director and everything, but I stuck to my guns. I said, aren't these kids student athletes, right? Like the student is first. I was yeah. like, so if they're not performing as students, they don't have the privilege of being an athlete. Yeah. So, so I have a whole story. I have a whole story about that too. Yeah. Because when I was in high school, I barely graduated high school. Mm -hmm. I fell apart in high school. I had stopped skating when I was 14 and it was like a death, you know, it was like, you know, my parents were getting a divorce. I'm no longer skating. So it was like experiencing two deaths. And so I fell apart in high school. I used to get really good grades and I, I applied myself in school. And in high school, I was like, forget it. Nobody cares. My parents are divorced, you know, all this resentment and, and sadness. And so I barely graduate. And so I, I, nobody cared whether or not I was going to college. And 
So I ended up going to junior college and I tried out for their cheerleading because I was a cheerleader in high school. And when she got my transcripts, she said, you can't be on the squad. You have you have like the worst grades I've ever seen. Mm. Literally for this, because I moved from L.A. to Orange County and I went to this junior college saddleback and and Betty Shear was her name. And so I said to her, well, put me on probation. And she was like, looked at me like what? And I said, put me on probation if I don't get a B average, you know, if I don't get really good grades, you can take me off the squad, but at least put me on probation. Let me prove myself. Let me show you that I can get good grades. Well, I ended up on the Dean's list because I wasn't, it wasn't for not, I wasn't being smart. It was just, I didn't apply myself in high school. I was busy surfing and I worked full time. Yes. And so I kind of went to school, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so now I'm telling her, just put me on probation, you know, and she's like, okay. I mean, I would talk my way into these crazy scenarios, <laughs> but because I was so passionate about what I was talking about, she believed me. She said, okay, because she really wanted me on the squad. And, you know, I, I was passionate about it and I told her I was going to get good grades and I did, you know, so there are always these little loopholes, right? But if, yeah, I get it. If you're not a student first and you're not applying yourself and you're just thinking you're going to be this star athlete, it doesn't doesn't quite work. Yeah, exactly. Like you were saying earlier about having a mentor, you know, to give that discipline, give that structure, to give that tough love. Like those kids that, that did have grades below, they brought them all up. And we had, I was only there, there for two years. But but we had back to back winning winning seasons. We went seven and three and six and four, and we we would have been seven and three the second year too. But one of our big meets was on the day of a senior field trip, and my whole team was fifty percent seniors. So we ended up we ended up losing that that one. But you know, obviously, we can't have them missing that experience. But like having that having that coach or mentor in your life when it's not there for you at home is is huge. But can you just take take me through your home dynamic leading to your, your parents' divorce? What was that like for you? You know, I I think that, you know, my home dynamic was my parents got married super young. So right out of the gate, I'm like, you know, set up for a little bit of a disaster because my mom <laughs> was 18, 19. She had me when she was 19. Yeah. And my dad was 22. So they had okay. no tools. They didn't know what was going on. It's, you know, and I've learned as I've gotten older that, they did the best they could with what they had. You know, they just didn't have the tools. And so my home life was always kind of, it just was what it was. And, and, you know, it's funny, I think because I was such a positive kid, I was always seeking attention and seeking approval and that I did do well in school and I was doing ice skating. And so I had all these things that I was doing that people, I was getting accolades for. But I was also a latchkey kid. So sometimes I would come home and there'd be nobody home and I'd let myself in at a very young age. And and so there was a lot of lonely abandonment feelings. And I think, you know, you don't realize it. I didn't realize it till later on that 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 there's a little trauma involved with that, too, you know, because you're coming home and I was scared like I'd come into an empty place and I'd always look around like somebody was in there. And, you know, I, I would look at other kids and their families and I would think, why is their mom home and my mom's at work? Like, you know, those were questions I would ask. Yes. And so, but on the other hand, I did not know that we were poor. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never, I didn't know the difference. And I just thought that everybody lived the way I lived and I didn't feel like, I was missing out on anything. I felt like I was being provided for up until my parents got divorced. And then when they got divorced, there was no money. And I ended up living in a, a town in LA called Hawthorne. And I went to high school. You know, it, my school and environment completely changed. I was at a private Catholic elementary school. And now I'm at this public high school and I don't know anybody. And so 
I think emotionally I was just falling apart, slowly falling apart. I didn't have any friends. I can remember my freshman year walking home from school alone. I didn't know anybody in my neighborhood. These kids all went to school together and then they all went to high school together and I didn't know anybody. So I met a few people in my freshman year and started to have a few friendships, but it took me a while to get used to that environment and get used to living in a neighborhood and you know, as a kid, that's a big deal. You know, all these changes are big deals. And so, yeah, it was really difficult. And I remember my father, he, he was a, he worked in the hangar at TWA. So we had to live where we lived because he lived close to the airport to LAX and there was no money. So I remember him, I, I needed clothes. I wore a uniform in grade school. Now I need clothes to wear. And I remember I had two pair of pants. I didn't have any clothes. So it was like, I had an, I had, an, you know, this was like, okay, I got to get a job. And so I remember the first job I got, I literally lied and said I was older so I could work. And you could get away with stuff like that back then. It's so funny yeah, how yeah. life is so different <laughs> now. You can't get away with things like that, but they hired me and at my first job, my first job was working at the Inglewood Cemetery, putting flowers on all the graves. Okay. And then and then I worked for Pioneer Chicken. And so I started making some money and I was able to buy myself clothes and and I started getting a little more security and 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 then I started meeting more friends because I was working and the kids would come in and you know, so I just got to know I had more of a social life. And then I started working full time my sophomore year at a at, at Clark Drugs. And they started you out in the ice cream where you served ice cream. And then I ended up working throughout the entire store. And I worked right after school until closing. So it was full time. Wow. And they were they were really careful. You know, they, they said, are you sure you're going to be able to handle these hours? and keep up with school. And I, and I didn't care about school. So I was like, Oh, yeah, I got this, you know. Mm -hmm. And so my grades definitely fell, but I was more concerned about making money and being able to dress for school because I didn't have any clothes. And, and I also was on a mission to buy a car. Yes. So I bought my first car. And then I had to find out, you know, after I bought the car that I had to buy car insurance. Mm. And I remember sitting there going, I can't drive the car until I get car insurance. And there was this guy, this is the oddest job I've ever had. <laughs> he had, he paid you to stuff envelopes. So oh, he wanted, yeah. So he wanted to do this mass mailing. And I think it was a dollar an envelope or maybe 75 cents an envelope. Well, I stuffed like a thousand envelopes because I was like on a mission to buy car insurance and whatever else my car needed and didn't have money, you know, for gas. So on top of working at the drugstore, now I'm stuffing envelopes at night, like thousands of envelopes <laughs> so I could buy car insurance. Yeah. So I did everything and anything, you know, during high school. And then, you know, I, I've always worked. There wasn't a time where I stopped working. Even when I left that area and moved to Orange County to go to college, I was still working. I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then I worked at a store called Close Time, which was a popular store back then in the 80s. And while I, always working while I was going to school. So That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That definitely speaks to your work ethic. Yeah. You know, and that's just given just given the background, you know, like having, having ice skating as an, as the initial outlet, I think definitely helped, but just yeah. knowing, knowing that you could take matters into your own hands. I think that's the, that's the true power in that backstory. Cause you would have had every excuse under the sun to underachieve, you know? Yeah. But you, I will you, say, you I will, I, I, I will pat my back on that, that without even knowing you know, without even knowing, nobody ever told me this, but without even knowing, there was something inside me that had that momentum of when is a good time now, you know, and there wasn't an excuse of, oh, 
I, I, I didn't procrastinate. If something needed to get done, like I needed to get car insurance, it was getting done now. <laughs> it wasn't getting done when I had time or when there were a week from now. It was happening now. Yeah. And I've just always had that, you know, thing. Like if I'd get emails or if people, you know, it's like I keep lists of things that will get done by the end of the day. And you know, I don't think anybody ever said to me, oh, by the way, did you get that done? <laughs> <laughs> they would never ask me that because they know. Yeah. Or I'll just look and go, what do you think? What do you think the chances are? Uh, <laughs> like a joke, you know? See, so so now I know what you're doing today. So like, I know we, we didn't get there with the audience yet, but just from what we've already covered, I can see why you are where you are. You know, like it, it just, it, it's awesome. It's amazing. And that's, yeah. That's why I do this, you know, to understand people's journeys. All right. Yeah. So, so you went to junior college. Did you graduate? Little. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not. So I, um, in, in the March of the fresh freshman year of junior college, the LA express, which is part of the USFL that I think they only lasted two or three years, but they decided they were going to have football, professional football in the summer. So the big ad came out in all the papers that they were holding tryouts for cheerleaders. And so to another girl and I from my squad in Orange County, we drove to the Hollywood Palladium and waited in line with a thousand girls yeah. to try out for the LA express. And so out of a thousand girls, they narrowed it down to 60. And um, I made it that first cut. As a matter of fact, they gave us two minutes to run out, do a quick two minute routine and then run off. That was it. And my routine ended up on the news on nice. all the news that night. Yeah, it was really great. And so, um, we didn't think we were going to make the squad because we were both, we looked really young and cheerleaders back then were like big hair, yeah. <laughs> you know, very voluptuous, great bodies, you know, kind of had sex appeal. And she and I had braces and mm -hmm. I had really short hair at the time. And we just did it for fun. We didn't ever imagine that we were going to make the squad and we both made it both of us. Awesome. And, and I think it was because they really wanted dancers on the squad, really good dancers. And they wanted to be known as a dance squad. So we made the squad and that kind of changed my, that changed the trajectory of my life because I ended up not going to the second year of college. I ended up going to Japan oh. in November of that year. I was 19. I was 20. And I went to Japan to dance for three months. And then I ended up staying another three months to do modeling and commercial print work. And so my everything in my life pretty much changed when I was 20. I came back and I knew that I, I wanted to dance, but I knew I didn't have the, the skill to do like Broadway show dancing. And, mm -hmm. and so I thought, I, I'm going to do modeling. And I remember everyone in my family were so gentle about it. They were like, yeah, but models are like 5'10", 5'11", and they're really thin and, and they're beautiful, you know, they're like Vogue. And I was like, no, that's not the kind of modeling I'm going to do. I'm going to do funny girl commercial print. Sure enough, I started putting a book together and while I was doing that, I took this commercial workshop because I had done a commercial in Japan and I loved it. Yes. So I took this commercial workshop in L.A. I don't know if they're still around, but it was called Tepper Gallegos. Mm. I don't know why. But anyway, <laughs> it was a six week commercial. And at the end, the agents would come and watch you do a commercial. And if they liked you or liked your look, they would asked to sign you. Well, three agents that night asked if they could sign me. And I ended up going with Pacific Artists. And then from there, I signed with Mary Webb Davis. And so I started working and doing commercials. I booked the very first commercial they sent me out on. And I had a good run. And then I 
switched agents. I ended up going with a bigger agent because I was doing so well. I went with a bigger agent. So I went with Sutton Barth and Venari and and then one of the agents there opened up his own agency and I and he was my agent at Sutton Barth and Venari. And so I went with him because we had such a good run. Yeah. You know, I would I was doing really well with him. I booked a lot of car commercials and and I just had a good run with him. So I stayed with him and to this day, I'm still <laughs> represented by him if I choose to, yeah. you know, go on an audition for commercials. But so, you know, all of a sudden I'm working, I'm doing a lot of catalog work. I'm doing a lot of commercial print work. I'm doing a lot of ad work and now I'm doing commercials and now I decide I want to be an actress. And so I started going out on auditions for acting mm-hmm. and luckily Somebody stopped me in my tracks, you know, these God shots that you get. And I went to read, I think it was in 88, 87 or 88. I went to read for a show called Charles in Charge. Oh, yeah. That starred Scotty Bayo. Yep. And, and yeah. And so I, I was reading for a big part on the show, a regular part. And I walked in. The casting director's name, I think, was either Mel or Marvin. But I walked into the casting and we talked for a few minutes and then I stood up to read the sides and he stopped me and he goes, come sit down. And he just said, you know, when you walked in the door, I would have hired you just based on your personality and your look. Cause you're exactly what I'm looking for, for this part. Mm-hmm. But girl, you do not know how to act <laughs> and you need to go and take an acting class and learn how to act. Yeah. And I was like, you know, how thankful was I? And, you know, most people may have taken that as like, Oh, okay. You know, I'll show you. But I actually took like right away. I was on the phone looking for an acting studio. I found one. And so it must have been 88 because in 89, I started at the Joanne Baron, Baron Brown acting studio, two year Meisner technique. And, you know, it's like these are the little things that lead you, they keep propelling you towards your goal or what, what. You know, it's like I thought I want to do acting. I went on an audition. I got stopped. Air, you know, breaks. <laughs> Go learn how to act. And so then I was sent, you know, to do that. And how thankful, you know, because I was really craving mentorship. I was really looking for advice and somebody to say, you know, and I would get, you know, I'd always end up in these, I don't want to say scam artists, but, you know, people that legitimately should not have been managers or agents. And, you know, I'd go on all these meetings and people would say they were going to lead my career. And, you know, and I, you know, you stumble a lot of, a lot along the way on a lot of that nonsense. Yes. So when I got into the acting school and I was fortunate enough that I had Joanne as a teacher, cause she doesn't teach anymore. Um, she does master classes, but I had her as a teacher for first year and talk about mentorship. I mean, I just really was like, okay, uh, I'm going to learn something here. And, and I really took it to heart to really learn, you know, what I was doing. I met my, my husband, I call him a husband now, but we met in, in that acting program in second year, we started dating and, we got married in 92. And so my acting career slowed down. I really got on a roll. I ended up booking a lot of pilots and I did a few movies and definitely my commercial work went, went up because I had a whole different way of auditioning. And, and so in about 97 or 98, I did my last pilot, a show called nightstand and it was a fun comedy. And, and I just remember the work, that it took. I had three young kids at home and just to be on the set every day and trying to remember my lines and, and just the distraction of having kids and trying to do that. I was like, I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this anymore. So I I stopped doing, I just did work that was, I called it easy work. Like if it was an infomercial or a commercial or something in LA that was doable with kids. Yes. That's what I did. So, so, and then, you know, 
the big the big break that I had in 1989 was Playboy magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I had an agent. I had already been modeling and I had already been doing commercials. And so I get a call from my agent, Vivian, at Mary Webb. And she says, Playboy's coming out with a new book called The Lingerie Book. And they want to see you about the cover. Yeah. And I said, well, is there any nudity involved? And she's like, I don't think so. It's for the cover. But you never know with Playboy. And so. <laughs> True. Oops. What did I do? Sorry, hold on. Trust me. Oh, there yeah, I am. Okay. Yeah, my my, my uh, pen hit the stupid button. Real life, real life situation. What can we tell you? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I show up to the famous building on Sunset, mm-hmm. and I sign in, and I they hand me a robe, and they tell me to take off all my clothes, and they're going to do a Polaroid. They want to see my body, and I go, Oh no, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the lingerie book. And they said, well, everything we do involves nudity. And what I want to say about that is in 1989, things just were different. It's just the way it was. They were looking for tattoos, scars, birthmarks, piercings. You know, they were looking for that kind of stuff back then. Nowadays, the more the merrier, right? But back then, mm-hmm. that's they were looking for all of that. And so... So I left on my undergarments, came out to the Polaroid. The photographer's like, I got to see your whole body. I said, I'm not here for that. I leave and I'm like, oh, they're definitely not going to hire me for that because I was a little difficult. Mm. But I got a call when I got home from Playboy on my answering machine. Remember those? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I pressed the button and it's like, we want to test you to be a centerfold. And I was like, this cannot be right. So I call my agent and she's like, no, it's true. They want to test you to be a centerfold. And I'm like, this can't be right. Are, are you sure they, they they might be mixing me up with somebody? Because I was like, I'm not Playboy material. Like, this can't be right. And so sure enough, I went in and I did a test. And then Hef looked, he looked at everything. So they do the test, they show him. And, and once he approves... Then I started shooting the centerfold and I shot for probably eight weeks and came out in March of 1990. And then I was on the cover of April 1990. And that was very unusual. That was just just a beautiful coincidence. They flew me to Chicago to shoot the cover. And so I got to shoot with Richard Fegley for my centerfold. And I got to shoot with Stephen Weta for my cover. Two amazing photographers. And... And it was just an amazing, I like it really, that just really changed my life because all of a sudden everybody wanted to meet me. I was getting invited to everything. Yeah, I was like, you know, talk about getting into a club. I could get in anywhere. And, mm-hmm. and um, did, I had no idea how it was going to change my life. And what's interesting too, is that I was older, you know, most of the girls that were centerfolds were, 18, 19 years old. I was 25 or 26 when I shot my layout. Okay. I was 25. And that was old for Playboy, you know? Like, I was an older playmate. And it, I remember I was in the makeup room, and it's so surreal when you're in the – it's not no longer there, but I, you're in the famous Playboy building, and you know the, all the past women that have sat in this chair, you know, and – it was just like I had this surreal moment, like, what am I doing? <laughs> How did I get here? And I was talking to the makeup artist, and she said, you know, Deborah, Playboy gets over a 1,000 submissions a day. Girls from all over the world that want to be in this magazine. And I, it just hit me, you know. I just thought how lucky and fortunate I was to be a part of that history and It was not a goal of mine. It was not, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't on my bucket list. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I'm going to be a playboy. You know, it just wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't a thought. And so, so that really changed my life. And so um, I think now my, you know, what I talk about when I talk to, to people or to groups is how did a girl there was a Playboy centerfold go from having that experience in life 
to now being in the top 5% in my, the business I'm in now and the industry I'm in now and, you know, really getting in the business world. And that's another thing I would have not, if somebody would have like told me about my life 10 years ago, I would have said, there's no way you're on glue. Like what? No, but you know, it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And I always, you know, my biggest asset are my relationships that I have developed over the years, you know, my network, the people I'm in proximity of though, that's my biggest asset. You know, my relationships are everything. And they are the reason that I've been able to really move forward in this business. Cause you know, it's, especially the business I'm in now, there's not a lot of women in life insurance. It's not a real sexy business, you know? And, mm. and people ask me now, what do you do? And I say, well, I sell life insurance, but what do I really do? I prepare people for unexpected life events. Yes. And then they're like, what, how do you do that? And I'm like, I do it through life insurance. And that's just one area of what I do. And then the other area I do is, you know, for, you know, we have a niche with, with, with wealthy people with estates, you know, and with the estate tax law, the only way to get around it is through a tax-free vehicle, which is life insurance. Mm -hmm. And so now with, you know, I think, I think it's going to happen by 2022 in the Trump administration, you had 11.5 million exemption. So if something happened to you, you die, you could, you didn't have to pay taxes on 11.5 million. Okay. Now that's going to change back to 3.5 million. That's a big change. Uh, yeah. And so, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that I do. And I think it's what's made us very successful in our, in our group. How did you get into that industry? So you had said, what was it, 97 or 98? 90, yeah, 98. So yeah. I got in the business I'm in really through my husband, through my ex-husband. Mm -hmm. So he actually, so we did our life insurance in 97. And I sat on the board with the gentleman that did our life insurance for something else for sports spectacular. And so I met him and he's like, yeah, I do life insurance. We're like one of the biggest brokerages in the United States. And I said, well, we need to talk to you because we don't have it. And we have three kids. He's like, that's crazy. You guys need to have it. Even if you have a term policy, you have to have it. So when we went in and we spoke with him, my ex-husband for anybody that doesn't know is, is Mitch Gaylord. And he was in the 1984 Olympics. Like, yeah. Like the gymnast. Yes. Okay. And so when we were doing our insurance, our insurance agent said, you know, Mitch, you, you could do really well in this business. If you just refer people to us, you know, everybody in the sports world. Mm. And so my, so Mitch went and got his license. And so he had it for a while. And, and so we kind of did it together, even though he had his license and I was referring business in and, I actually referred them one of the biggest cases they had they had done in 2002. It was a huge, it was a $70 million case. Wow. So when I got divorced and I'm reinventing myself, I called this these guys that did our insurance and I said, hey, now I know about referrals and stuff. So I said, hey, you know, I've been referring for 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 fun and friends, you know. Now I'm like <laughs> Hey, if I refer you business, can I get a referral fee? And he said, go get your license. Mm. And I was working at a print procurement company at the time. So on the weekends, I would study, study, study. And I got my license in December of um, 2010, my license. I'd been around the business since 98, yeah. but I got my license in December of 2010 and by the end of 2011, I was the number one, number one agent for one of the carriers that we sell for. And yeah. so it was unbelievable. It was like, it, you know, for me, I had this goal when I got divorced and it was, I pray, you know, God, I just want to get my kids through school 
I just want to be able to provide and get them through school. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, be careful what you ask for, because that's basically what happened. I was able to provide for the three kids, get them through school. And, um, and we had, you know, we had a, a nice life, you know, I did really well in 2011, 12 and 13 were phenomenal years. And, um, you know, like I said, my, my relationships were everything because I called everybody. I made it, I, I was on a mission that every day I didn't, I didn't stop until I had at least one person that let, would let me audit their insurance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what's beautiful today is that now I get texts from people and they're like, are you still doing insurance? Cause I have a referral for you. And that to me speaks volumes when people remember and they refer business Yes. I know that I did something right because because of the way that I try to add value for people. And, you know, and I'm 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 of the thought process that and I've had people send me their insurance and I've literally said, don't change anything. Stay exactly the way you are. Whoever did it did a great job. Yes. Like I've had that happen because you can't. That would be the wrong thing to do. Yes. Right. That just wouldn't work. And so but if I can save somebody money, I'm going to tell them, you know, it's like if I can save you 22 percent on your premiums because somebody didn't. Give you the right medical classification, then you're going to switch with me. You just are. And so that's that's really, you know, in a nutshell, I'm constantly trying to add value. I don't put my phone down unless I have a new client, or at least that's the way I started my business, you know, in the beginning. Yes. I think in sales, it's a numbers game. Definitely. Anybody who's in sales knows that you're going to get one yes out of a hundred no's. And so, you know, I came up with the phrase, no means maybe. Yep. <laughs> because I, mean, I would say, that. yeah, because people would say no to me and I'd go, okay, I'll call you next week. And they're like, no, I said no. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, but things change. It's true. Things, things change. change. And I might have a product next week that you'll want to know about that your guy isn't telling you about. And that happens all the time, too, because a lot of people in my industry, they just want to get that one sale. OK, let me sell you a million dollars of term insurance and then they're gone. Yeah, that's not what I do. So I have, we have one specific person in our office that all they do all day long is look at products. So sometimes I have to go back to my clients and go, you know what? I want to switch your insurance into this. We're going to just roll it over into this product. And it's going to save money on your premiums or one payment prepays it for five years. You've got to move over here. So that's the type of stuff that we do. And that's where we add value. And it's, a little bit different. You know, our clientele is a who's who, you know, I have 80% of my clients are in the entertainment business because of my relationships from being in the, so, and that was, that was, if anybody's out there going, well, that's easy. She was in, no, mm -hmm. I had to get over these hurdles of, well, she was in Playboy. She can't sell life insurance. I was going to ask know? you about that, but go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, when people had a preconceived idea about me that she's just, you know, on the cover of Playboy and she was an actress and now she's trying to do this. That's a hurdle that can almost like it's almost better if nobody knows your past or what you did because they have nothing to. So sometimes people would know and sometimes they wouldn't. And I would always know in a meeting when they knew. I'd always know because they were just waiting patiently to the end of the meeting to go, what was half like, you know? <laughs> and then I knew I had a new client, you know? It's like, so, it's, so you know, I, I, I made it more of a, you know, at first I was a very, I will admit, I was a little insecure about it. I'm like, oh God, people are going to Google me and they're going to be like, she did Playboy and how can we take her seriously? You know, I had that and then I got over it quick because when you show up and you're doing your job, it doesn't matter. The past doesn't equal the future. So true. At all. Yep. Yeah. And now I'm super proud of the fact that I was one of 
thousands that were chosen to be on in Playboy and part of Playboy's history, which is huge. Yeah, and that and that shows the courage to do it because you can't yeah. ha- get that that stigma attached to it. You know, and I had a, totally. I had a feeling I had a feeling that you were going to go there anyway. That's why I, did, I didn't ask because I can kind of gauge like where you were going going with the story. So I was like, let me just see if she goes there herself before I ask. Yeah. And you yeah. did. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. It's... Yeah. So I was I was going to ask. So so you joined in 2010, became number one in 2011. Like you kind of touched on it already. But why don't you just go a little deeper into the process of going from just starting to dominating? So uh, because of my, I call it a Rolodex because I age myself, I'm 57. (laughs) And, you know, we had Rolodexes back in the day. But but because I have this really beautiful device, you know, that my connections are everything. My address book, whatever you want to call it, my contacts, my email list. I emailed everybody. I emailed people that I knew were not going to buy insurance from me that were going to go. A lot of people don't believe in it, right? They don't understand it. So they don't believe in it. Yeah. And so I knew I was going to get a lot of pushback, but I didn't care because I come from the thought process of, If I tell you what I'm doing, you might be at a dinner one night and somebody might be saying, oh, I'm looking for somebody. I need to I need a new life insurance agent. And because I let them know that that's what I was doing, they go, oh, I I know this girl that's doing that, you know. So that was my thought process was the more I could refresh people's memory about what I was doing. And then, you know, I had a goal of one client a day. And whether it was just getting an audit and people would go, well, what's an audit? And I'd go, look, here's the deal. Most people don't know this, but their medical classification is not correct. And if I can change that for you, I can probably save you 22 to 30% on your premium. And that could be huge because most life insurance agents just check the box standard. Mm. Half of my clients are super preferred. Yeah. So the premium is better if you're better for the agent, if it's just standard. But that's not how I roll. Yeah. I'm like, no, you should be super preferred, super, super preferred. You know, there's substandard, there's like, there's tables right below standard. Some people pay an exorbitant amount a premium because they smoke, they have diabetes, they have a lot of health issues. They can get insurance, but they're like sub sub standard. Mm. And then I have clients that work out every day, have no health issues. And even though they're in their fifties, they should be super preferred or preferred. And there's a 22 to 32% difference. So when I would go to people in the beginning, I'd say, look, if you just let me audit what you have, If I can save you money on the premiums that you're paying, then you will you switch over to me and let me be your agent? And they're like, if you can say, well, some people said no, because I I use somebody that's a family friend. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. But some people would go, okay, if you can save me money, I want to see that, you know, and nine times out of 10, because it was the box was checked on standard. I'm like, you're not standard. Yes. And, and half the time they were super preferred. These are friends of mine. We work out together. I was like, (laughs) so that's how I built my business in the beginning. And then, you know, as I, as I started, I was growing fast. Um, The beautiful thing was, is that because I, 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 I had such good momentum that those people that I was able to save them money, that those were my biggest referral you know, they were, they were telling everybody, you got to just have her look at it, you know, and make sure that you're the right classification, medical classification. Okay. So are you working for for a company or or is this your own place? So I have my own. So I am uh, DDG, Deborah Driggs Gaylord. So Mm -hmm. DDG Insurance Services. 
And I place a lot of my business through another insurance company. And then I have a lot of master brokers that I work with and I'm licensed with most of the carriers. So I'm licensed with Pack Life and Mass Mutual and New York Life. I mean, nice. Hartford, all of them, Prudential. Nice. That's yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and just thinking from humble beginnings all the way to here. Seriously, very yeah. humble beginnings. That's yeah, amazing. And you like, know what? I had to, I will tell you, I went through this, this phase when I started, you know, because you're talking about a girl that didn't have money. And then even in the entertainment business, you know, I made good money, but not the kind of money that I made in business. And so like I would get checks and I remember I got my first big check. Oh my God. <laughs> I, that sat in my safe for like two months. Wow. Cause I didn't know what to do. I was like, do I deposit this? What do I do? And I, I thank God I had mentors at this point that were like, okay, here's what you do go. And you need to put it in a, a, you know, TD account or a Morgan Stanley account. And, you know, because I literally did not know what to do. I had to educate myself on, on that. And, and then, you know, obviously then I wanted to get in the investment game. So I, I invested in a few risky investments and, um, you know, so it's like a learning process, you know, but in the beginning I was like going out for shoes and handbags. And then somebody very smart said to me, Deb, and you know, and I think I take direction very well. They said, Deb, if you're going to buy those shoes, invest in the company. And it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, why am I buying things for free? Like if I'm going to buy a ton of Louis Vuitton, why don't I own stock in the company? Yes. So it just, you know, and I'm using that as an example, but I'm just saying mm -hmm. that that when that advice came to me, I thought I got to rethink this, you know, because I'm just blowing money right now. Are any of your kids in the business? No, I have. I have three artists. Okay. So I have a son. He's the oldest. And he is got a YouTube channel and a, he's got a company called beer in the bathtub that he's just starting. No. It's just starting. Yeah. And then, and then he's also applying to the fire department where he lives. He's, he's in Texas. Okay. And then my two daughters live with me in LA and um, one is an artist artist. Yeah. And the other one and she's a beautiful artist. And the other one is a recording artist. She's recording an album right now. Nice. Musician, cool. singer. Yeah. Nice. What style? Lana or Del Rey. Lana Del, Del Rey. Lana Del Rey comes to, I mean, she's her own, but Lana mm -hmm. Del Rey comes to my mind or Lady okay. Gaga. You know, she's kind of, gotcha. she's gorgeous and, you know, she writes all her own music. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm also a little bit of a momager sometimes. A momager. <laughs> when they ask me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Was, was been the momager. <laughs> I love the word. By the way, my no, no means maybe is only in sales. Okay. So your parenting, it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Because kids are always like, but you said maybe. No, no is no. <laughs> so true. All yeah. right. So how can people get in touch with you? The easiest way to get in touch with me is on Instagram. Mm hmm to follow because I'm actually, I've got a couple of really fun projects that I'm working on. And so those projects I'm going to be sharing on Instagram as they start to unfold. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have a website that's going to be uploaded in a couple of weeks and I'm going to be putting that on Instagram. My social media is my name at Deborah Driggs. And um, I would say that that's the easiest way at all my social media is if you're interested, if you're legitimately interested in insurance, just send me a private, private message. I'm actually going to be putting a zoom call together that because of all the new tax laws that are going to be happening, everybody needs to be educated on what's, what's coming up, what's coming down the pike. Nice. Are you, are you li licensed in Rhode Island? I am. You are. I'm licensed in uh, uh, New York, Virginia, Texas, Arizona, LA, Florida. Okay, good. I know yeah, and it's really easy. It's, you know, once I, if I get a client 
um, outside of the areas that I am licensed, some of my licenses will allow me to like Rhode Island or, you know, some of the smaller states will let me use that license. It just depends. I just have to look. Okay. Yeah. Check it out. And let me know. Cause I can definitely re refer you some business. Sure. Absolutely. That's not a problem. So awesome. regardless, that's not a problem. All right. Yeah. See, so when I was on that podcast guest site and I came across your profile, I knew, I knew right away. I'm like, she's, she's going to have stories. Like I just, <laughs> I just knew right away. I didn't yep. even read the whole profile. <laughs> not, not at all. Cause like yeah. with, with me, I, I know this sounds bad, but like, I'm not, I'm not very selective because everyone has a story. Everyone, everyone does. does. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, if people are interested, I'm, that's why I'm always like, just book, just book and we'll talk later. You yeah. Know? Because, like, the less I know about you going in, it just makes for a, a more organic story. Yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, it, sometimes people want to send me all these questions and things. And I'm like, you know, I think it might work better organically because yes. when you're too rehearsed, people can see that. And it's exactly. like, ah! exactly. it's like, oh, she's got this down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, before before we sign off, when, when I got when I got. uh professionally trained in public speaking, I was, a, I was a pretty good speaker going into it, but they helped me switch from speaking to storytelling, you know? So like, there's a big difference. So going through that process is why I'm able to ask, I don't want to say the right questions, but just, you know, to ask questions to make people think a little bit deeper because most everyone says like, oh, I've never shared that much on a podcast before. And I was well, like, well, mine's about storytelling though. So that's why I want you to get that deep. It's so true. And I was just going to add a little tidbit to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. people relate to stories. Yes. When you're just speaking at people, then you're kind of on a soapbox. But if you're really telling a story that people go, oh, yeah, I, that happened to me. Or, yeah, I remember I didn't do so well in school and, you know, and I had to do this. You know, whatever whatever story you're telling there are people are going to be relating to the story yeah. when you're just speaking at people. They're like, you know, they're falling asleep. Yeah. You know, it's like, exactly. I enjoy hearing people's stories too. That's why I watch documentaries. It's why I listen to podcasts myself and, you know, and I love hearing people's stories and how they got started and, and, you know, what, what hurdles they had to get through and, yeah. All of that, you know, it's brilliant. Yeah, and hearing that you didn't sell out your morals to to get into Playboy, where the guy was saying we need to see all of you, and you were like, "I'm not with that." You know no, I did it later on. <laughs> right. No, later on is fine, but I'm just saying initially, though. Yeah, you know, like that. That takes a lot because, as you yeah. said, that, that's a huge opportunity because you know, in yeah. show business, it's all about being known. So here Absolutely. you are in a very popular popular magazine and you were like no <laughs> and they still called you yes <laughs> you know yes. So like that's that's powerful yeah yeah it's 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 a it is it is powerful and you know i'm i've had so many beautiful opportunities and i am just super blessed so thank you so much for even allowing me to come on and share my story and i look forward to talking with you again yes absolutely yeah 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 like, you know, yeah, like as things change you know if you you want to come back on and talk deep deeper into insurance absolutely. or if you go in a di different direction by all means you know absolutely yeah, like, yeah, let's definitely keep in touch thank you thank you right. so much my pleasure have a great bye. day thank have you bye bye-bye all right that was deborah dropping some knowledge for us and um as you know you guys have obstacles, you can get through it. If you have things you want to accomplish, you can make it happen, right? Just stop letting things, stop letting other people get in your way. Just step into your greatness because you have it. It's in there. You just have to step into it. And if you need help pulling it out of you, reach out. Okay, that's what we're here for. That's why we do this. All right, so that's all I got for you. This is episode number 78. We are signing off. I will be back on, what is today? Today's Tuesday. So I'll be back tomorrow for a solo one at 11. It'll be about 20 minutes or so. And then I'll be back with Shelly on Friday. All right, take care. Have a great day.
You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping others break through the barriers that are holding them back. To book Robert B. Foster to speak or to reach out, go to robertbfoster.com slash speaks on Instagram at Robert underscore B underscore Foster on Twitter at RBF underscore fitness and on Facebook at Robert B. Foster. Till next time, shut up and grind.